Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Scott Bryan. On the show today, Elon Musk has bought Twitter for $44 billion. Rishi Sunak becomes our third prime minister in three months. What does this mean for our future media policy? Adam Bowie breaks down all of the radars. And in the media quiz, we're covering telly surprises. That's all coming up this week on the Media Podcast. In for news this week. BBC News presenter Mark Sin Croxall was taken off the air over a, quote, potential breach of impartiality. There were accusations that she expressed glee at Boris Johnson pulling out of the Conservative leadership race. Al Jazeera journalists have voted to go on strike over pay with dates set for November. BAFTA Children's and Young Persons Awards are returning for the first time in three years this November. Uh, these awards celebrate the breadth and creativity of UK and international programming for children and young people. Uh, nominations include for The Snail and The Whale and the show Dodger. But on today's show, I have two media experts with me to tackle the headlines. Janine Gibson from the Financial Times and James Ball from the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. Hello. Hello, Scott. How are you? Good. I love it that we were giggling like schoolgirls literally 10 seconds ago. And now it's all very restrained again. What's a very meek and grown up greeting, wasn't it? (laughs) It is. We should address the the elephant in the room because I don't think Phoebe, who is our producer, had realised this when she booked both you. James and Janine as a guest is that we all used to be colleagues at BuzzFeed UK. Janine used to be my boss and James used to work on a desk at the other side of the room. So it's it's a delight to have us all together again. It feels like we're just sort of just meeting each other 12 hours earlier in the day than we would usually do. Let's start with you, Janine. Um, it's been another very busy week in media and politics. Um, did any of the media coverage stand out to you? I think probably... My favourite moment was watching Nadine Doris standing in for Piers Morgan on his Little Watched talk TV show. And I must say in parentheses that Emily Sheffield, who was her co-host, struggled womanfully and I think very successfully with with the whole situation. But watching Nadine Doris uh, sort of interview herself and and realise that television might be a bit harder than she had previously thought whilst being in charge of regulating television was was a highlight for me. I mean, I found that there were only 8,000 viewers tuned in for that first episode. 8,000? That many? 
8,000, yeah. <laughs> that many. And then it rose to, I think, 25,000 for the second episode. I mean, we'll, we'll oh, go really? and chat about more about Rishi Sunak and the future of media policy. But did you find it weird that Nadine was kind of debating Channel 4 prioritisation and the BBC licence fee, whilst, of course, being the person who, as culture secretary, was trying to introduce those changes? I mean, debating, we, we, we could debate whether she was debating. That's one thing. I thought it blurred the lines between impartial hosting of a programme and being a guest on a programme and asserting a certain amount of opinion. It, it was just a miraculous piece of television all in, really. Yeah, really was. Uh, James, you've recently published a profile on European media mogul Matthias Dopfner, who you called, quote, the most influential man you've never heard of. I'm intrigued. Can you tell us who he is and why we should be paying more attention to him? I mean, I'm sure listeners of this podcast have uh, very much heard of him, but uh, he's sort of the, the media mogul that's worrying liberal America at the moment. He was very nearly the owner of uh, Janine's esteemed publication, he had a jet on the runway ready to fly off and buy the FT and uh, got gazumped by uh, Nikkei. I think the important thing is that hardly anyone reported that he'd already bought it, especially not the FT. Anyway. <laughs> it's a bit bad when you re- welcome the wrong new overlord, isn't it? He's, he's quite an interesting media mogul in that he was given the company after running it for about two decades. Axel Springer was... Um, sort of controlled by the fifth wife of Axel Springer, she sold him about 4% of the shareholding and gave him a further 22%, which was worth at the time about a billion euros, uh, which is a hell of a way to become a a billionaire. Now that he owns Politico and he's making some comments on US politics, there's there's a bit of a sort of sense of alarm at him. Um, But it was quite a fun profile to write because, of course, all of this goes into the uh, profile and I get you know, in a very dramatic way, one very polite email from an Axel Springer press officer uh, asking me to uh, correct the revenue for 2021, which uh, we'd we'd put in the wrong figure, and nothing else. <laughs> you know, I've been screamed out for for far less than we put in this one, and just one. Could you just fix the number? <laughs> nothing else matters. Your waffle is irrelevant. Well, we'll be chatting about other media moguls later on in this episode. But let's start with our first story. Flawless link. Oh, thank you very much. I was thinking about <laughs> it for the last minute. Rishi Sunak has become Britain's third prime minister of 2022. Uh, he's kept Michelle Donlan as culture secretary. But will a new PM mean a new media policy? Uh, before we get into the policy predictions, there was quite a bit of news this week about media alliances. The Telegraph was caught deleting an article by Nadim Zahawi. James, were you on Twitter in the three minutes that that story existed before it was deleted? Scott, you know me. Of course I was on Twitter in the three minutes that story existed. And what an absolute delight. I mean, of of all the ways to get sort of caught short by Boris Johnson, having agreed to do an op-ed in his old paper just as he withdraws from the race. And then, of course, I think the next morning, uh, Zahawi sort of tweeted out a... It was like it was like 20 minutes later. Oh, gosh, it was a, Was it that fast? So I've got the tweets here because I love uh, bringing up the receipts. So he tweeted on the October 23rd, early in the morning. He said, I'm backing Boris. He got the big calls right. Uh, Britain needs him back when I was Chancellor. I saw a preview of what 
Boris 2.0 would look like. And then at 9pm that night, there was that Telegraph story that went up that said, get ready for Boris 2.0, the man who will make the Tories in Britain great again. And then 30 minutes later, he tweeted, a, long, a day is a long time in politics. Given today's news, it is clear that we should turn to Rishi Sunak to become our next prime minister. So You've, you've <laughs> got to love as well that, that he went for the Donald Trump phrase as well. I mean, just, you know, really magical. Go full, you know, I endorse Boris Johnson with Trump's slogan. And then, oh no, on second thoughts, you absolutely don't yeah. want to hand it to Boris. Janine, a Telegraph media spokesperson, said of the deletion of the article, quote, As a digital first publisher, we respond quickly to major news events and update our content as quickly as possible. Do you think the Telegraph come off well by <laughs> deleting Nadim's article? Look, we've all published an article by James Ball in which he's got the numbers wrong and then had to go back in and change them afterwards. That's We've all been there. You'll be hearing from Carter so- Ruck. <laughs> <laughs> You've just admitted it. So, <laughs> so we've, all, we've all had to be, use the phrase, had recourse to the phrase, never wrong for long in digital publishing. I was editing on Sunday night. We have slightly earlier print deadlines than other people. Fortunately, we had been incredibly sceptical in the tone of our coverage. And even though the paper had already gone to print, it was sort of okay. But most of 9 till 9.30 was just all of us swearing and then cheering ourselves up considerably whilst looking at the Telegraph and going, well, it could be worse. Nothing disappears from the internet. This is the problem. The second you delete it, you just... Ironically, he handled it more gracefully and uh, acknowledging that the facts on his own Twitter feed than the Telegraph did, which is a supposedly sort of, you know, in- independent publication. He said, oh, well, you know, days a long time in politics and... Shrugged his shoulders because he knew fine well he was not the only person vicar of braying that weekend. But the, the Telegraph was, has just gone for this very clumsy erasure, which, I, yeah, I, I don't quite know how they managed to get themselves into that position. Do we know that much about Rishi Sunak's relationship with the press in general? Well, his spokesperson was Allegra Stratton and then she had went to work for Downing Street and then you'll recall and then you'll recall she was filmed laughing about the possibility of parties during the pandemic and had to resign she was the only person that resigned but nonetheless she had to resign I believe she now works for Bloomberg writes a newsletter that's quite a a complicated relationship with the press I would say at least there's no extra factors that complicate it you know if for example Allegra was married to the political editor of The Spectator, who also wrote a weekly column in The Times, who was an old school friend of Rishi Sunak's and uh, reportedly the best man at his wedding. Best man at his wedding. You would start to get into quite a uh, complicated thing. And so it's, it's uh, a strange coincidence that James Forsyth is in fact all of those things. So he's got a very friendly relationship with some parts of the media. He's never been all that great with the adversarial bits of it. He sort of quite famously got very, very upset when there was coverage of uh, his wife's non-dom status and whether she was sort of taking advantage from that on the UK tax, which um, given she changed how she's the basis on which she's she's paying it, it's clear that she was legally getting some advantage from it. He did seem to think that that was an unfair, low-blow personal attack while he was running the nation's finances, notably in charge of the department that collects all of the tax for the country. 
I sort of feel like he's in for a rough ride with the media as PM if he thought that was a low blow. You know, outside of, you know, those those with whom he has very friendly relations, I think he's probably going to have to very, very rapidly develop a much thicker skin than he showed in the Treasury. And I'm not sure that's easy to do. It is a bit rich for the three of us to sit here and go, mm, they're so incestuous, mm, all these political and media people who all know each other and they're all... Um, given that, as we've just discussed, we've all known each other for years. Yeah. But it is it is very peculiar, I think, that this government, which has, of course, been in power for 12 years now, has such close ties to the very senior ranks and very prominent ranks of the media, which, which, which are supposed to cover it independently. We know fine well that when a newspaper like the Mail calls for Liz Truss's toppling, we're about three days from it because they basically put her there. It's probably a good thing for Rishi Sunak that he knows the right sort of people and everybody's terrified at the top ranks of the right-wing leading newspapers that the Tories have, have, have um, <laughs> stuffed up. <laughs> Thank you, James. <laughs> he's, yeah, I mean, he's probably got a small honeymoon period. But some things have stayed the same. I mean, I mean, we still have the same culture secretary. So is there any expectation, Janine, of how media policy might remain the same or change? Is it, or is it a bit too early to say at this point? Don't you think that if you were media policy, you'd just keep really very, very quiet right now and just back quietly out the room going, it's fine, everything's fine here, we're fine. I mean... Of every possible thing that is going to hell in a handcart or on fire or plummeting or causing, you know, national destruction, media policy is really just there's not really a problem. I mean, God love her. She did put together, Nadine, quite the basket of mad media measures, but I just can't see any of them happening now. I can't I can't see anything. Michelle's going to have a nice quiet time. She's going to put her feet up and worry about libraries. Because as this is a podcast, it's not a visual medium. Um, what is the book that you're currently holding, Janine? <laughs> temporary accommodation at the moment and the only thing I found in my flat when I moved in was a copy of Nadine Doris's number one bestseller The Angels of Lovely Lane and I'm I'm slightly obsessed with Nadine Doris and it was just lying here when I walked in and I thought <gasps> she, she knew is this like the 21st century version of a horse's head in your bed you just sort of find just Nadine <laughs> Doris's book opening it at random and looking for clues <gasps> imagine imagine but of course, Nadine Dorries also stood in for Piers Morgan this week and uh, pressed her media policy points on talk TV. I mean, do you think Sunak is listening in, was listening in, cares, doesn't care? I mean, I'm sort of intrigued by um, whether the, the current government is really listening to what Nadine Dorries has really been saying. You've got Michelle Donnellan and Oliver Dowden in government, and they've both been quite happy to bang the culture war drum. So I think I agree with Janine that we're not likely to see privatising Channel 4 or a big war on the BBC happening in legislation. What I think we are going to see is every time the government wants to distract from the fact there's no money in there, you know, cutting your bin services again, um, we're going to see a sort of mooted war on the media. The one that seems to be the big headache is the bill that will never die and yet never quite be born, which is the online safety bill, which has for about the eight millionth time been published in draft again this week and still is basically unworkable. And so, you know, that that largely affects tech more than media, but these sort of laws end up affecting us all. And that's the sort of big DCMS in tray. And 
you know, I'm sure in a way they'd just love to get it off the books. He's right about online harms, digital safety, whatever the hell they're calling it now. I mean, everybody just wants it to go away, don't they? Ideally, without voting on it, but perhaps voting on it, who knows? There's no point to it. It doesn't really have a thrust to it. I do think it's really interesting that out of the last week, some acts of self-harm by broadcasters, but, you know, two, Christian Guru Murphy and Martin Croxon, both sort of forced to, I guess, humiliate themselves on the sort of a decency of neutrality or whatever. I mean, it's just it's just nonsense how much these people are pilloried. And indeed, I, Nadine spent about an hour on Martin on her on Piers's show the other mm. night. I mean, Christian Guru Murthy very clearly had to apologise. Um, I thought Channel 4 were right, you know, he had to apologise. Martine, I just sort of thought, it was a quite giddy-making evening. It doesn't mean that you're loving it or that you're suddenly a radical Marxist or anything. It just was quite high-dungeon politics. And I thought it was really obvious she meant that. And I thought it was a shame... They weren't a bit more robust about that. You know, If they sort of make it quite easy to attack them for silly stuff by pretending that silly stuff is very serious. I think the Beeb could have actually looked a bit grown up and kind of gone, you know, it was stupid phrasing, get over it, you snowflakes. This has been the cumulative effect of the last five years, though, hasn't it? They have to go and suspend people all over the place. I really hope that both BBC and Channel 4 are able to put their shoulders back in defence of their journalists over the next couple of years. Well, let's move on to a a social media story. What a lovely segue. It's our second media mogul of the show, Elon Musk. He closed a $44 billion deal to buy Twitter after months of legal wrangling and Twitter spats. One of his first reported acts was to fire Twitter's chief executive and the financial officer and head of legal and general counsel. James, you were back on the media podcast when all of this began to uh, possibly happen. And you said that there was a 70% chance that Musk's deal would close. I guess this is all quite breaking news. I mean, this has happened pretty much overnight. What do you make of the fact that uh, he's actually bought Twitter? And also, I guess, is it aligning with what your expectations were? I'm really glad that prediction stood up. That would have been completely mortifying if I'd <laughs> gone the other way. I mean, what what's funny is, of course, that there's four execs who, who have been kicked out overnight. That's not as steady as you go first week, you know bit worried that he'll have sort of find that you know no one's got the key to the safe or he's forgotten how to do payroll but um there's sort of the legal team being kicked out quite so quickly it's an interesting one especially as their rep was actually generally being quite robustly pro free speech and uh, they're in the middle of some quite key sort of legal protections for twitter um section 230 is going to come under threat if the republicans take the house and the senate there's quite a lot going on and uh he didn't have to be quite so melodramatic on day one but i don't think anyone's too surprised i mean as we record this elon musk has just sort of done the ultimate vanity purchase he's bought a company for 44 billion that's worth at most 20 and given that we're recording this in the middle of a massive crash in tech stocks possibly 15 he is radically overpaid for it Uh, And all of Twitter's employees will have just had a very nice uh, payment through for their own stock, certainly the ones that vested. So he may find that he loses a lot of the staff that he needs to keep or would want to keep, even if he was wanting to slim it down. I think the big thing in the early sort of few weeks is going to be who's allowed back on. 
and there's the big, big obvious one there is, is Donald Trump invited back to Twitter? And that will be a real litmus test. If it doesn't happen within the next week or two, Republicans are going to very quickly accuse Musk of sort of having feet of clay on free speech. If he is brought back on, he could very quickly cause a lot of trouble because I'm sure he wouldn't come back and try and be contrite and nice and not cause new moderation headaches. So... Mm. When you are, you know, when you are Elon Musk, when you rely on China for a huge amount of your business, when Tesla stock price isn't what it used to be, when there are challenges for the car industry everywhere, when you're supposedly focused on getting humanity to Mars, I think he's quickly going to find that this is like the worst fun billionaire purchase ever. I mean, we've all bought things that we later regret. Um, <laughs> but also, I um, sort of saw this week, Janine, that Reuters reported that Twitter is losing some of its most active users. I'm also intrigued by what Reuters or this study that Reuters was uh, uh, referring to as a, quote, heavy tweeter. What is happening with Twitter's core user base? I think it was a leaked document from Twitter. I noticed it when it first dropped on Twitter. I then tweeted about it a bit. I then checked a bit the following morning when I was then next on Twitter. I think I fell asleep reading about it on Twitter, then checked it again in the following morning and then uh, replied to a few people that had replied to my tweet about what a heavy tweet was on and off through the morning, uh, probably involving, I don't know, 44 check-ins and 256 interactions on the Twitter platform around its assertion that heavy Twitter users tweet three or four times a week. <laughs> Which just, <laughs> oh, like, God. Somebody said, yeah, heavy drinkers drink three or four Carlsbergs a week. It, I don't an addiction. I, I don't think the document understood what addiction was. What I also found absolutely fascinating about that document was the analysis. Firstly, that the heaviest users, i.e. the people interested in news and politics, who basically, in any digital publishing operation, you're a tiny fraction of your users, the very top of the pyramid, constitute the vast majority of the activity on your site, whether it's comments, clicks, whatever. On Twitter, and I think any of the other social media, it's a very, very narrow point at the top. But interestingly, on Twitter, they've all gone elsewhere. So the entertainment, showbiz, celebrity, you know, there was a period when all celebs were on Twitter, and they've all just gone elsewhere. They're on Instagram, whatever. So all of those users have gone to now TikTok, probably via Instagram. But interesting, the news and politics people have also uh, uh, in the main or significantly dwindled off. I don't really know where they've gone. I feel like they're all still there. But, you know, uh, that's what the document says. James, you were already saying it a bit earlier in regards to Donald Trump potentially being put back onto the platform or given access to it. Are Twitter's best days in front of it? Does Twitter feel a lot more shaky now? I mean, it's always a bit harder to be the... um, uh, stare into the crystal ball and try to work out what's happening next in media. If you're still on Twitter now, it's because you have a weird codependency with the drama and the bird app is the thing you open as the world burns. And on that basis, I think Twitter's about to offer a better service. <laughs> so, um, 
Yeah, I, it's I so actually, rude I think... to subtweet your fellow panelists <laughs> while the panel is going on. It's so yeah, rude. Thanks a lot. We are three of the most on Twitter people I know. I spent about half an hour last night when I was trying to fall asleep, but reading Twitter on what, uh, a thread that somebody had started as the deal closed that went, yeah, kiss goodbye to Twitter. Did you see this thread? Of course you saw this thread. This You're is uh, from Ben Ben Collins, who is one ben underscore on Twitter, and he's uh, NBC's disinformation uh, correspondent. And it is the single best Twitter thread that has ever it's existed. An, I probably saw it because you retweeted it. But it said, uh, you know, it basically <laughs> said, kiss Twitter goodbye, post all your best tweets of all time in this thread. And honestly, I mean, A, it's the best thread of all time. It's fantastic. But also it does remind you slightly that it used to be a more creative, more joyous place. I know I sound like an old person, but it is objectively true. It has become a bit of a wasteland. I do blame all the politicians. It does feel like a, a sort of cross between the PA newswire where you post your official statement of regret and sort of the Hunger Games. I mean, Twitter is obviously fundamentally broken. And James is not wrong that the people that spend too much time on Twitter must likewise be. I assume eventually we'll grow some self-respect and leave it alone. No? Well, you can all follow us on our own respective Twitter handles. (laughs) You're at JamesBRUK, is that right? Uh, JamesRBUK. Because I have a really common name. (laughs) At Janine Gibson. Was it underscore Janine Gibson? No, I was on it before it was basically invented. I'm very old. I've got my actual name. And at ScottyGB, which is my initials. I'm not that patriotic. We're now going to take a spin around the latest radio figures. The Radios came out this week and we caught up with our radio trend correspondent, Adam Bowie, for his expert analysis. Hi, I'm Adam Bowie and here are my top five Radio headlines from this quarter. Uh, number one, radio listening is back above a billion hours a week. Uh, it briefly dropped below that mark and historically radio has always managed to this much listening. But then you've got to put that in context of last week, Rajar publishing its most recent Midas survey data, and that showed continued growth of things like on-demand music services, so Spotify, Apple Music, that kind of thing. And 34% of adults listen to one of those each week. And podcasts are growing as well, with uh, 19% of adults listening weekly. So there's competition for radio for our listening, and in that context, as billion hours is still pretty good. Number two, it's been a great quarter for commercial radio. They have over a 50% share of listening for the first time. Now, historically, the BBC has always had a greater share of time spent listening, but in recent years, that's fallen away a bit, and we've continued to see commercial radio grow, and this quarter, it's at 50.9% as I say, over 50% for the first time. Now, there is one small caveat I would put to that. That's a big spike in a single quarter. And for my own sort of sense of consideration and things, I, I would always think about things over a slightly longer period. One set of radar does not a summer make, as it were. So it's great news for the commercial radio sector, but let's just see if those numbers hold up. As a consequence, it's not been such a great quarter for the BBC with most of their national stations registering audience falls. And I just, if I had to highlight one commercial brand this quarter, I think it's worth calling out Bauer's Greatest Hits Radio Network, which has seen significant double-digit growth year on year. The one uh, little sort of good point for the BBC, number three, is that Radio 1's had a really decent quarter. It came back from a record low, but it's come back 
really well, uh, back over 8 million listeners. And although the station is still down a bit on the same period last year, the summer's basically gone well for them. And they've even made big events like things like Scott Mills departing the station after 24 years. So there's a good little story there. Number four is that speech radio is down pretty much across the board. So we've seen Radio 4, 5 Live, see falls in reach and hours. And this quarter, we've also seen it across the board with stations like LBC, Times Radio and Talk Radio all registering declines in, in one metric or another. Oh, and we shouldn't forget, obviously, there has been a lot of news over the summer. We've had Boris Johnson resign near the start of the Rajar period. You've got to think about this as the period we've been looking at. Right through to the Queen's death, which happened right at the tail end of the summer and the tail end of the Rajar period. And there's obviously a cost of living crisis underway, continued war in Ukraine and many other things. In fact, the only thing we really didn't have this summer was the World Cup, which ordinarily every four years you would expect it. We're going to get that next month. But we did have the Lionesses at the Euros. So... This feels like a bit of an oddity and perhaps is indicative of a few different things, maybe uh, just people trying to get away from the news sometimes. But also this summer was perhaps the first summer when a lot of people had the opportunity to get away in any respect at all since the start of the pandemic. And, um, you know, there is always a seasonal variation anyway in the summer with things like summer holidays. But it just feels particularly big this year. I suspect speech radio will be back again. We've seen continued growth in the sector, but uh, it's just a curio this time round. And my, my fifth point is smart speakers are important. Now, I don't think that's any surprise to anybody, but a few quarters back, Rajar has started specifically breaking out internet listening via smart speakers. And the numbers are perhaps surprisingly strong. Nearly a quarter of all radio listeners, just under a quarter, claim to have listened to at least some of their radio via a smart speaker. And Rajar's reporting now that 13.4% of all radio listening, that's all radio listening at all, is via smart speakers. Again, same caveats apply. It says only one quarter. But we know this is an increasingly easy way to listen to the radio. And it's notable that if you look at a group like 1524s, this percentage is even higher at 15.7% listening via these speakers. You might also look at that group and find maybe slightly less ownership of traditional radios anyway. So, But I think all of this is a useful reminder that to stations that you know, they should be telling their listeners the way to listen to listen to them via smart speakers and continue to point them and tell them the words they should be using, the language they should be using, as much as they already point people towards their mobile apps or, if any stations are still doing this, actually just talking about the frequency. So that's my uh, quick little uh, brief roundup of what happened in this quarter's Rajar. You can find more at my website, adambowie.com, or find me on the socials. I'm at Adam Bowie. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Adam. It's now time for a short break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be back after this with some news about everyone's favourite doctor and the media quiz. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And as if like magic, we are back. And I'm still here with my two marvellous guests, James Ball and Janine Gibson. Uh, for, let's have a look at some news in brief. This is quite big news. All new seasons of Doctor Who will be streaming exclusively on Disney Plus outside the UK and Ireland. Uh, James, are you a big Doctor Who fan? What did, did you make of this announcement and rebrand? I mean, it was on Netflix, so the shift is is not that big. But it's some of the BBC's best IP, even you know, though it lost two thirds of its viewers during the the most recent era. They're really bagging out the favourites uh, because you know David Tennant's back. You've got all of that. The Beeb need the money. They, you know, this is not about British viewers anymore. This this is a huge commercial powerhouse for them. So. You know, if Disney have given them a load of cash, that's great. That helps fund our public service broadcasting. But also at the same time, for those who are in Australia, um, on the ABC, they're not going to be able to watch on linear traditional TV anymore because they are coming to the end of their 50-year partnership, um, which would have normally meant that the Doctor would have been on free-to-air TV. You're now going to have to spend $11.95 to watch it over there. I mean... Janine, do you think that this could damage some of Doctor Who's international numbers or do you think that linking with a streamer is uh, is a good thing for them? Well, linking with a streamer, like any distribution deal, as James said, is a good thing in the sense that it's a revenue property and therefore the numbers are, are, are depended on. So it's, they've got to make the money. I suspect that uh, the ABC didn't bother to make the highest bid because the last incarnation has not particularly gelled and hasn't done hasn't been particularly compelling in ratings terms. That said, even when you have Stephen Moffat, Matt Smith, the sort of you know one of the great eras of of, of Doctor Who and Jane Tranter, who's the the BBC exec, who's really masterminded this the Doctor Who modern Doctor Who in the US, trying to grow this property in the US outside of its traditional core sci-fi nerdy fan base, and they filmed several episodes in America. They had a really big push. Do you remember? When, when Matt yeah. Smith was the doctor. And it didn't work because essentially it's so, you know, it's so peculiarly British and quirky and uh, and of us and our national character, which is so essentially either misunderstood or loathed around the world. <laughs> you know, it's always going to be a niche thing. So I, I do suspect that um, ABC in Australia 
you know, if it turns out that this is a massive, brilliant success bringing David Tennant back with Russell T. Davis, and I am a fan, so I trust and pray it will be. I expect they'll find a way. It'd be like Ian Katz with the cricket. You know, they'll fi- they'll just find a way to get the money to get it back. That I, we all get very overexcited about rights deals these so days. So would that be uh, Channel Four boss and uh, former colleague of two out of the three of us, Ian Katz? I was not best man at his wedding. <laughs> But I, I also just think that it's rather interesting in terms of being able to create a global buzz, isn't it? The fact that if you have a show that debuts in every country on a certain platform at the same time, rather than being sort of distributed over weeks, months, years over different channels, it can create a global talking point. But I guess the liability can be, as you were rightly pointing out, Janine earlier in regards to its last big push in America if it doesn't work it can just sort of disappear very quickly in the world of streaming it can easily get lost and with dramas that idea of simultaneous coming together is actually really vanishing now really really vanishing my kid and I sat down to watch the regeneration of of Doctor Who and we watched an hour of the previous episode of Doctor Who by accident because we hadn't watched it and it was next up on iPlayer and we got to the end of it and I was like where the hell is David Tennant but um, you know we were three days like I don't know it it doesn't really matter anymore my word and we're staying on the topic of TV in this week's media quiz Uh, so let's dive in it's a game of TV surprise I have three questions about three surprising telly appearances or announcements this week of course me being a TV uh, geek if you know the answer buzz in with your name so Janine you will say Janine brilliant and no <laughs> is that what you were saying the contempt with which you said that <laughs> and James you will say James thank you very much right who made a special guest appearance on the repair shop this week James King Charles III. Yes, to mark the BBC centenary, the episode featured His Majesty bringing in a broken vase and clock. Is that not the show where they like, you know, you bring in something and then you get all upset about it and then they repair it for you and then it's all heartwarming? Why, why is a yes. king get his stuff repaired for free by the BBC? What I mean, because what? Because he's only worth half as much as the Prime Minister. I, I ju- hmm. That is quite funny then. What I love about the repair shop is that I go down and I watch this show with my parents when I see them and they have never made it to the end of an episode of the repair shop when I'm with them where they are still awake at the end of the programme. They both just (laughs) pass out to it every single week without fail and it's an absolute delight. And I say to them, oh, it was great when they restored Blatt. Let's make up something. And they would be like, oh yeah, that was a great part of the episode, not (laughs) realising that they had been asleep. The Doctor regenerated this week. Who did Jodie Whittaker turn into? James. David Tennant. <laughs> David Tennant. I get I'm the point that. To, I buzz. Well, no, I'm giving that to Janine to make it, you know, tension and drama. I'm taking this to judicial review. Just <laughs> uh, This media quiz is the patriarchy because women don't uh, shout their own names. They just want to... Uh, James obviously is very happy and comfortable with shouting his own name. That's uh, not how I <laughs> exist in the world, so... <laughs> It's one apiece, so it's all to play for. And this is the final one. Which broadcasting legend had to issue a clarification on Twitter after a fake number 10 tweet suggested that she was, quote, Secretary of State for Cruise Ships and Entertainment? James. <laughs> so it's it's uh, Jane, what's her name, isn't it? Is it so Jane, Jane McDonald? I was going to guess Jane yeah, McDonald. Jane McDonald. Oh, it's a draw I... because I got the surname. 
Okay, I'll do that. That's that's very left wing of us. <laughs> it is a very good tweet as well. Um, someone had mocked her into a number ten announcement, and then she tweeted the image and and said, "Quote: This is hilarious. A number of people have got in touch to congratulate me on this, just to confirm that it isn't real. Someone put this on social media as a joke." <laughs> God, God love Aww. you, Jane. Well, I, I guess this winner, it's, uh, I think, a first time in all 201 episodes of the Media Pod. It is a draw. But there Hooray! we go. Um, either of you have got anything to plug? James, you've got the new Conspiracist podcast. Who have you had on that recently? We have, on Monday, we have a very special episode with James O'Brien. We've, uh, But no, we've had excellent range of guests. It is newconspiracist.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And Janine, obviously, assistant editor of the FT. Is there anything from the FT that you're very proud of and want to talk about more at the moment? I don't really believe in plugging. It's rather graceless. But I do think everybody should read Ruler's Lunch with Elon Musk because it's just funny and relevant and it'll make you happy. I will um, tweet it, probably. Are there any accessible digital FT products for those who don't want to pay? Oh, do you know what there is? There's an app called The Edit that you can get at a low, low price where you can read the highlights of FT journalism on a daily basis for less, much less than the normal premium subscription rate. That's available on the App Store. Thanks, James. What I loved was that you said you weren't keen on plugging and then you gave the pluggiest of all plugs I have ever, (laughs) ever heard. Thank you so much for sticking with us. We hope that you enjoyed today's show. Uh, there are three simple things you can do to support the team so we can keep bringing you the media news and the media podcast each and every week. Uh, you can become a patron of the show at patreon.com slash mediapod. You'll be able to access an archive of all of the interviews and media experts that we've had on this show over the years, all 201 editions. That's patreon.com slash mediapod. And of course, if you do not have any spare change, don't worry. Tell us your colleagues about this show on Twitter and LinkedIn. And of course, you can follow us to hear new episodes when they drop on your podcast app of choice. Subscribe at podfollow.com forward slash the media podcast. My name's Scott Bryan. You can follow me at, at ScottyGB. Thanks very much for listening. The producer was Phoebe Adler-Ryan with support from Matt Hill. And it was a Rethink Audio production. We'll see you next week. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.